0: Good morning. Um, let's help my voice get through this. <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've been a bit bunged up for the last couple of weeks or so, so uh, let's just help my voice get through this. It is just water, I promise. Uh, so this morning, we're concluding our Abrahamic journey. As we said, in response to the word that we had as a church, that we're on an Abrahamic journey. During Lent, we've been looking at the story of Abraham, and over the weeks... We've asked how does the Abrahamic story relate to our personal Lent journey, connect to our Junction 10 journey. And if you missed any weeks, you can catch up on the podcast. But to quickly recap, we've looked at the calling, the promise, the visitors, the other, and the choice. And today we look at the legacy. I'm glad you find it funny. We look at the legacy. I don't know if you read about the scientist who he, he wanted his legacy to be. He was the man who found out how heavy a rainbow was. So he committed his life to this study. And at the end of it, he found out the rainbow was pretty light. <laughs> uh, hello? i got, got a delay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, that. <laughs> it, rainbow's pretty light. Yeah, you, you get it, you get it. But what do we mean by legacy, and does it matter? A couple of weeks ago, Michael McIntyre's The Wheel was on. Uh, One of their children had changed off the God Channel. That's what it was. Um, It was on, and one of the contestants had won £45,000. And I think he was a taxi driver, so it was probably more than his annual salary. And as he he was saying about this, he's got this prize. He got a bit emotional talking about it he said he wanted to go around the world and visiting tennis grand slams that's one thing he wanted to do with it but he wanted to put some money aside for his granddaughters leaving a legacy it was the idea of passing something on continuing after he'd left this world it was important to him part of the legacy of Volvo for you Volvo drivers is safety in part because of the three-point safety belt they designed it but recognising the importance of their invention, how it would save lives, they didn't patent the design, which meant that other car manufacturers could use it in their cars as well. On the other hand, I found this, there's a song with a title, Legacy, which repeats the line, won't be here, so I don't care. And the refrain is, nobody cares when you're gone. Should we ever sing? No, we won't have a sing song. <laughs> I think the writer's probably a bit of a pessimist, yeah. don't you? Yeah. But hopefully this morning, at Abraham's leg, as we look at Abraham's legacy, you'll agree that legacies do indeed matter. Before we get to this week's story, though, in Genesis 26, we need to follow the events in the intervening period. Uh, things that have happened after. Last week, we looked at Abraham's walk back from Moriah uh, with, with Isaac and the sacrifice of the, uh, the ram. We need to look at the events since then. And there's quite a few deaths to, to go through before we're in a position to think about new life. So, the first death that we come to is Sarah, Abraham's wife. We read in Genesis 23, Abraham mourns and weeps for her, negotiates with the local people to buy a burial cave uh, in uh, Machpelah. Uh, that's where Abraham and Sarah pitched their tent in, as we read, read in Genesis 18. And having mourned and buried Sarah, Abraham's next job is to get a wife for Isaac. So he sends his servant to the home of his brother Nahor, who'd remained in Ur of the Chaldeans when the rest of Abraham's family had departed um, for Haran. And there the servant encounters Rebekah by a well. Rebekah agrees to return with him in order to marry Isaac. And in Genesis 24, we read that Isaac brings Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent, that he marries her and he loves her. And this registers and marks perhaps the start of the movement from one generation to the next, as we see the start of a new life, a new story developing for Isaac and his family. Then we get into Genesis 25, we get to the final years of Abraham's life, and he's busy. He marries again a woman called Keturah, with whom he has six boys, and apparently Abraham also takes concubines. And after Sarah had expressed concern about Ishmael should not inherit um, along with Isaac, verse 5 tells us that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac and gave only gifts rather than inheritances to the sons of his concubines before sending them away as he had done with Ishmael in chapter 21. Then in verse 8 of chapter 25, Abraham dies at the age of 175. And we see Ishmael return here as he and Isaac come together to bury Abraham alongside Sarah in the burial grave. In verse 11, we read that God blesses Isaac. And then from verse 17, we read Ishmael too dies after fathering 12 sons, as he had been promised by God in chapter 17, verse 20. And then in the final half of chapter 25, Isaac's story begins properly. And soon it becomes apparent that the new story is Abraham's story retold to some extent. Isaac prayed because Rebekah was childless. With God's help, she gives birth this time to twin boys, Sound familiar? Couldn't give birth. Esau, Esau and Jacob, literally from birth, were struggling, fighting with one another to attain the, face, the place of firstborn. Ishmael, Isaac, yeah, you see the, the parallels mirroring that story there. So we've caught up with the events up to chapter 26. And now we can uh, look beyond Abraham's death and start to explore his legacy. Last week, as we looked at tw- chapter 22, um, Vicky looks at it, but if you look at it in the context of Lent, Holy Week, and Easter, you can't help but see similarities, parallels between Abraham's faithfulness and Jesus' own self-sacrifice. Abraham's preparedness to sacrifice Isaac is not unlike Jesus' preparedness to give his own life. The parallels are not only between the extraordinary sacrifices made by Abraham and Joseph, but also between the consequences of that sacrifice in each case. Because the sacrifices change everything, as we'll see in chapter 26. So, I'm going to read the whole um, chapter. Uh, I'm mainly going to focus on verses 1 to 11. But we'll read the whole chapter because as we go through, you'll see how Isaac is indeed blessed. So, are you ready? So, now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, Live leave in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. I've had that problem going out with Justin sometimes to places. <laughs> when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebecca. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, "She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister?" Isaac answered him, "Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her." Then Abimelech said, "What is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us." So Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. So he had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. (coughs) Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarrelled with those of Isaac and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Esek, because they disputed with him. They Then, dug, <clears throat> then they dug another well, but they quarrelled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. Then he moved on from there and dug another one, and no one quarrelled over it. He named that Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants to a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Or Phicol, I'm not sure. Isaac said them. Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went home peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well there dog. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. When I was, Esau, then he says, jumps to another bit, Jacob takes Esau's blessing. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beroi, the Hittite, and also Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of great grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So the legacy wasn't plain sailing with that that final bit there. But after reading that chapter, do you get a sense of deja vu? Yeah? Deja vu, we've been here before. Genesis 26 starts almost the same. starts almost as a retelling of the story of Abraham. There's a famine. Isaac's about to head to Egypt, as Abraham did. But God intervenes and tells him to settle in Gerar. Like his father, Abraham's fear of his life is greater than the fear of his wife. Due to his wife's beauty, he tells the Philistines that Rebekah is his sister, just as Abraham did with Sarah. So Abraham obviously passed on some of his faults and weaknesses to Isaac, but that's not the legacy we're going to be focusing on. This Abrahamic journey, it's book-ended with two sets of promises. We've just read that God appears to Isaac and makes him promises very similar to those that he made to Abraham. And chapter 26 is where the promises made by God to Abraham right at the start of the journey, and then again at other points along the way, are then passed on to Isaac. If we look at verses 3 to 5 from chapter 26, it says, Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give you all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham your father I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky and I will give them all these lands and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements commands decrees and instructions God extends to Isaac and his offspring the promises that had been previously made to Abraham but let's compare that what we've just read with the speech of the angel of the Lord to Abraham in Genesis 22 just after Abraham had sacrificed the ram in place of Isaac by myself I have sworn this is the Lord's declaration because I've done this thing and have not withheld your son I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command You see the similarities between the two passages. Promises to bless Isaac and Abraham, to make their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and all the nations would gain blessing through their offspring. You'll see references to God's oath in red, the promises to bless in blue, to make their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky in green, and that all nations would gain blessing. That's underlined on on the screen there, if you can make that out. And scholars are persuaded, because of these similarities, that the two speeches are indeed connected. Promises spoken to Abraham in chapter 22 were extended to Isaac in chapter 26. And the idea of extending promises from father to son is seen elsewhere in the Old Testament. And we've seen one king's, God's promises to David are extended to Solomon after David's death. And this process is also referred to as generational blessings. Yeah, so it's the legacy of Abraham, generational blessings. We read in the Old Testament in Isaiah 65 verse 23, for they will be people blessed by God, they and their descendants with them. But back to Genesis 26. The extension of the promises from Abraham to Isaac isn't the only new thing going on here. Not only does the the recipient of the promise change, but also the foundations of the promise and the guarantees changes. What are you thinking? What does he mean by that? Well, we've looked at Genesis chapter 12 and 15. We saw that God's promise to Abraham had no condition attached to it. There's nothing Abraham had to do before God Would fulfill the promises. All the conditions were on God's side. We're told in Genesis 15 that God's reliable and can be trusted. And God's reliability is presented as the guarantee for his promises. So because God said it and he's reliable, it will happen. Yeah. In chapter 26, though, God presents a new guarantee for the promises. And in the future, God's promises would be reliable for two reasons, not just one. And in addition to God's reliability, God's promises to Isaac and his descendants would be reliable because of Abraham. In verse 5, God tells Isaac he will keep his promises because of Abraham's obedience. Abraham listened to God and obeyed all the requirements, commands, decrees and instructions. Can you get any greater praise and recognition than that? Or a legacy? God effectively pins Abraham's name to his own. But hang on a minute, what, what commands, decrees and instructions did Abraham keep? Because they hadn't had the law yet. Now ah, You see where I'm going. The law wasn't given to Moses until later in the story, in the, in the book of Exodus. And what the people think that actually when they're saying that he kept the requirements, commands, decrees and instructions, God's referring back to what Abraham did at Moriah. His willingness to be obedient to God, even when there was no possible benefit in, in obeying him, in, in, in giving Isaac up. There was no benefit in doing that for himself, but he was obedient to it. And through the obedience of that at Moriah in chapter 22, the relationship between God and Abraham's family changes. Abraham's faithfulness becomes part of God's faithfulness to his chosen people. And that certainly resonates at the start of Holy Week, doesn't it? Yeah, about God's faithfulness, how it intertwines. As we think about Jesus' obedience and how that changed our relationship with God. So Abraham, we looked, not a particularly special person to start with, but became the special person that God chose him to be. His legacy, one of obedience and faith, which resulted in generational blessings. And turn to me with Matthew chapter 1 to see where the descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky Led to. <clears throat> if you haven't got your Bible, just listen. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Ab- Abimadad. Abimadad, the father of Nashon. Narshan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa Asa the father of Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram Jehoram the father of Uzziah Uzziah the father of Jotham Jotham the father of Ahaz Ahaz the father of Hezekiah Hezekiah the father of Manasseh Manasseh the father of Amon Amon the father of Josiah Josiah the father of Jehoiakim Jehoiakim and his brothers born at the time of the exile in Babylon And then after the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's the legacy. So we come to the end of our series. And how has your Lenten journey been? A time to break away from normal routines, to focus on our spiritual journey through prayer, sacrifice and charity maybe. And just as Abraham's journey was a series of shorter journeys, you may have discovered the journey that you set out on is just the beginning. And you're going to be stretching this journey out way beyond Easter. Way beyond Bankology Monday. Are you still heading to where you thought you were going at the start? Are you taking a break in Haran? Are you seeking sanctuary in Egypt? Or have you arrived? Even if it feels you've arrived, our journey with God's never done, is it? Never done. You may have climbed to what you thought was the top of the mountain, but once you get so far, if you've ever been up a mountain, you get so far, and what was the top isn't the top. You go up and you can see higher peaks that aren't, like they can't be viewed from the ground. There's always another journey to go with God. And we go, go on it knowing he will keep us on the road, heading towards our ultimate destination. So what's the next part of your journey, personally? Is it to step out in a new area of service or ministry? To make Jesus more known to those around you? Is it to move to a season of rest? To increase your quiet times with God? Reading the Bible more? Regularly praying with others? The decisions we make on our journey will determine our legacy, for good or bad, individually and corporately. Has anybody heard of Everest Galway? I'll say it again because it might be the pronunciation. Everest Gallioy. No. He may have been as famous as Albert Einstein. Who's heard of Albert Einstein? Yeah. So why haven't you heard of Everest? Well, on the 29th of May, 1832, he sat down and he wrote a 60-page mathematical masterpiece without taking a break. His work that night contributed more to his field of expertise than most of his ex-team colleagues could ever hope to. It said what he wrote that night could keep generations of mathematicians busy for hundreds of years. So why did he do it? He did it because he wanted to leave a legacy. And he knew that he might die the following morning. Because he'd been challenged to a duel. This is 1832 in France and he'd been challenged to a duel. Pistols at dawn. And foolishly, he'd accepted The challenge, wanting to defend his honour. So around the pages of the formula, he scribbled several times, I have not time, I have not time. And he finished shortly before dawn, went out to meet his opponent, and died soon after from the gunshot wounds. A story of legacy, but waste. How much more could he have achieved? And hopefully none of us here are going to die anytime soon, but what legacy will we leave? What will we we be remembered for? Will it be a life wasted, pursuing things that don't matter, or a lasting legacy in the lives of others? Corporately, what's our legacy? We can reflect on different things as a church, things we've been involved in. You know, aside from all the stuff that's gone on in in Junction Ten, the building, things like the vines come out of it. First base, accommodation for young people. Stepping stones. Some of these have, have happened and finished and, and some are still going. A significant role in the net or love play country. Great praise and worship. You know, one of the guys on the minister's training with me is going to become the leader of a church in Wakefield. The church in which Smith Wigglesworth, and if you don't know that name, look up. The name Smith Wigglesworth died in. He was attending a funeral for someone else and he passed away in one of the side rooms. And that's perhaps seen, because when he was saying, I went, uh it is also, my uncle was, was the pastor there, so that's kind of another story. But I was like, ah, that's the church. And he's like, yep. And it's perhaps seen as a badge of honour to some, something as significant in that in the Pentecostal movement happening in, in that place. But actually, it's been a bit of a challenge as well the legacy of that, because people got ideas and expectations about that. And if we look more recently at Junction 10, what's our legacy? And this was a bit difficult to write, but hopefully you know my heart. Is our legacy the church that knocked its building down and spent the next however many years wandering, trying to their best to get a new building, getting back to what they once were? Is that our legacy? Or as Vicky challenged us, is our legacy, the church which was radically obedient to God, who heard his voice to say, demolish the building, build a community with Jesus at the centre, and don't worry about the building, because if you do, as I say, if you're obedient, you will become the church that you were meant to be. Is that our legacy? And what what if our legacy is that, if we truly do believe that and we seek to do that? Our legacy, Junction 10, who knocked the building down, who became transformed into a community with Jesus at the centre, who saw salvations, healings, miracles, unprecedented growth, who went from a church in one location to a church making an impact across the whole of the borough, in Alamwell, Dalston, Bescott, to name three to start with, with groups across the whole borough who were not hindered by not having their own building, who found favour with those in power, who were offered buildings and facilities to use, and who God provided with a new building or buildings in the future. Is that our legacy? The talk's coming. That's not the end of the journey. The arc's coming. That's not the end of the journey. And we've heard from our mother church, the new building isn't the end of the journey. So as we conclude this morning and this series, I want to take us back to the question, how does the Abrahamic journey relate to our personal Lent journey, connect to our Junction 10 journey? I'm thinking specifically about the legacy of the journey. I'm going to take a moment now to stop and pause and reflect while we play a video. And this this video is a legacy of COVID, but in a good way, which proclaims God's faithfulness and his desire to bless not only you, but your children and your children's children. And as you reflect, if you need to respond in some way, please do. Write it down, stand, kneel, raise your hands, You don't have to, but it may help to seal something by changing your posture as we go through this.
1: make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. I rain down from
0: heaven. This isn't second guessing. We know that we are protected. May the peace that surpasses all understanding be our message. Grace and favors in your nature, in your essence. May His favor be upon you and a
1: thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children, the children. May His favor. Children, please, baby, be a part.
0: don't believe it was any coincidence as you got to the bit about your children and your children's children. Our youngest member spoke out and cried at that point. That was no coincidence. So Lord, as we just listened to that, you, I believe you just imparted something. You imparted something there. Eh? The legacy. That's where I was going to kind of end this morning. But during the week, I picked up on a, um, a prophetic word that... Jared Cooper retweeted, and uh, I'm not sure why I opened it, um, but as I read it, I felt there was something in it for us as a church. It says it's for pioneers, the definition of which is a person who is among those who enter or settle a region, thus opening it up for occupation and development by others, or it's a group of foot soldiers detailed to make roads, dig entrenchments, etc., in advance of the main body. So, this morning... Your pioneers, your pioneers. It's by Anita Alexander. and It's called the Sifting Season. I've got Andre to look over it quickly this morning, and then he's like, "Yeah, yeah." So, to the pioneers and blueprint carriers, your seat of governance is only on the other side of the wilderness. Know your season, and know that what is being formed, and know that what is being formed in you will be imparted through you. Luke 22 31 and 32 says and the Lord said Simon Simon indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you have returned to me strengthen your brethren Peter was about to enter a trial that would not only test his faith but reveal it the enemy had a purpose and that was for the trial to take him out and cause his faith to fail this sifting would reveal what was genuine love for God versus love for himself. He thought that when Peter's heart was revealed to himself, he would give up and desert his calling, which was to lead, guide, and govern the birthing of a new era of the early church. The sifting season is our wilderness. It's where our hearts are revealed to us. It's where much welfare, warfare sorry, takes place in our lives and where the enemy is relentless, trying to cause us to give up. What we are pioneering is tested in the wilderness. Blueprints of governance that the Lord has infused in our spiritual DNA are separated from selfish ambition and self preservation of the flesh. The next part's headed from declaration to governance, building according to the blueprint. In this time, we are a voice in the wilderness proclaiming the blueprints we are carrying but it is only in declaration form it is not yet governance this proclaiming in the wilderness season prepares the way for the time when the testing of faithfulness is completed therefore establishing the blueprint 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who imparts all blessing and favour, who has called you to his own eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself complete and make what you ought to be, establish and ground you securely and strengthen and settle you. From this place, just like Peter, we are then called to strengthen our brethren. We are to go from declaring, proclaiming space to a building space. This is governance. When you build according to the blueprint, then you are truly governing, which means that because you have pioneered the blueprint in the wilderness and it has been tested and tried, you are able to then build and impart that to your brethren. Many think that just because you are declaring it, you are governing it, but that's not always the case. John the Baptist declared and proclaimed the baptism of fire, but he didn't govern in that space. He only prepared the people for the blueprint of what he saw. Jesus was preparing vessels who would govern in that prophetic foresight, which he was released by John the Baptist. Those disciples would become apostles and build that blueprint into the next generation, which would then be carried forth for generations to come. We are now the fruit of the legacy of that initial building and sorry, we are now the fruit of that legacy of initial building and governance. Peter, however, was not ready for to lead the day of Acts before Jesus' death, even though he thought he was. There were many areas of denial and confidence in his own strength that would have caused him to fall and abort the establishing season. The work of the Lord, however, became so complete in Peter's life that when it was time to step into his building season, the very weaknesses in his life had become his strengths. He no longer feared man. Eventually he was martyred for the Lord, but not before he had had securely impacted the earth for the kingdom in the generation he was called to. When you enter your building stage, A lot of the time, the blueprint will seem like old news to you because you have been cultivating it in the wilderness and in secret for years, but it is new news to the generation and those who are being called to build up and impart to. It will be as if they have never heard of such things before. That's because the Lord has not only been preparing you for such a time, but he's been preparing hearts, making them ready for the deposit of the kingdom you have received through the testing of fire. Like Peter, many people think that just because they have the blueprints in their hearts from the Lord, they are ready to build straight away. However, it's quite the contrary. Every preparation is achieved in the wilderness. Don't be discouraged. Just see the season for what it is. I know sometimes in the wilderness, we think it will never end. And the last section is building with precious stones, gold and silver. My husband said something so impacting the other day. He said, when you have gone through the fight, you won't build again with wood, hay, and straw. You won't build with your own agenda to serve your own agenda. You will build with precious stones, gold, and silver. When you build this way, what you are building is eternal. It has legacy, and it lasts for generations to come. So my encouragement to those of you who are in a proclaiming in the wilderness stage and are frustrated that no one is listening and it's falling on deaf ears, understand that your faithfulness to the blueprint is being tested. Those whom this blueprint is to be imparted are being prepared. And when building time comes, they will listen. This isn't for a flash in the pan season, so we can feel important for a bit and fill our egos. We won't last. That's why ego is purged out of us in the wilderness. Holding fast to the blueprint has a way of killing all flesh. The Lord won't allow us to use this blueprint to self-elevate. Its purpose is to build the kingdom. Yield to the full process and have a work that is eternal and a legacy that remains beyond your time here on this earth. This This is being a true builder and a true pioneer. Last weekend the, the training started with a session and it, the, it almost word forward what's in there, your disadvantage will be the catalyst to mission. So if you see not having a building as a disadvantage, that'll be the catalyst to mission. And it'll be the start of our legacy. Our legacy won't be that construction that's on three two three. Because the time will come, forty years, hundred years when that new building won't be there. Our legacy is what's done through us, through that place and what's to come. Let's, let's stand a moment. Guys, if you want to come back on the, on the stage. Lord, we're so thankful for how you are guiding us through this. And Lord, we know that you will provide You will provide. But Lord, we're to rest in that and make our legacy the impact on the people around us. The lives changed. The hope that's brought. The healings that are achieved in your name. Let that be our legacy. A people who build their lives on you, around you, Who, and the blessings which go forth from generation to generation. Lord, whatever stage we're at in our own journey, I pray that you'll just give us, that if, if we need the strength to carry on, you might feel that like we're in that tough time, that we're in that wilderness season. Just give us the strength to, to carry on, knowing that you are with us every step of the way. Amen.